Hello, and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a child bride and a child husband. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> There's no avoiding it. And uh, tell a friend. <laughs> yes, that's I. <laughs> This is not the right episode. Uh, For those who don't make it to the end, and I truly don't blame you, there's been an ongoing discussion about me forgetting to say up top that we would love for you to tell a friend. Uh, This is a niche podcast with a niche listenership. Hello to the lucky 12, the 12 apostles we call you. (laughs) But now it's time to spread the word. Exactly. We, we we need you to multiply the fish and loaves in our bank accounts. <laughs> or, wait. <laughs> I guess we are receiving the fish and the loaves? Uh, I don't follow the metaphor personally. <laughs> the fish and loaves are money that we get. Okay. <laughs> uh, at any rate. So we would love to beseech you to tell a friend about the program if you enjoy it, uh, what are some good episodes for people to listen to? Because I feel like you know it can be daunting to. Uh... Boy, what if what have we talked about? <laughs> I thought the "Are You Listening?" episode we just did was a banger. Sure. Personally, anytime a guest is on, it's usually pretty good. I think. I was gonna say I think the Persepolis episode with Eric Stiller was good. Of course, you can hear us talk to Scott McCloud. Yeah, that um, one's so, yeah, good. But- the Understanding Comics one, I think, is also good. Um, it's really long. Though. It's really long. A, a lot of the Scott episodes are really long. Basically, I think uh, if you recognize the name of a comic, give it a give it a shot. So sure. Well, I'm, to yeah. that end, a lot of the Brian K. Vaughn stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> sure. Well, recommend to a friend. You know, we'd just love for more people to listen as the long and the short of it. And now that I've turn everyone off with a <laughs> five minute <laughs> rambling recommendation to please tell your friends um today we are taking taking a plane break as comedy bang bang used to say we are doing one of our classic uh do we have a name for these annuals i guess yep even though they have it's been this is what like the sixth <laughs> the one? fourth one yeah in <laughs> just over a year i guess they're right. more like quarterlies sure uh, we have finished Tilly Walden. What a great miniseries that was. We're heading in, for those who did not hear the end of uh, our Clementine episode, we're heading into Ed Brubaker post-Captain America. That's what I'm always saying in the Avengers tweet replies, I guess. Mm, Post-Captain, Post-Captain America? America. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the send nudes of the Avengers. Uh-huh. <laughs> So look forward to that. We will be uh, doing some X-Men comics next week. Which we love um, famously. Sure. Is that something that we're famously have no, an on? The only other X-Men comic we've talked about was Ultimate X-Men, which we did yes, not love. It's true. It's true. Um, but this week, more importantly, we are returning our first ever part two of an annual. <laughs> uh, we are returning to the well of the Hobtown Mystery Stories uh, we are covering uh, by Chris Burton and Alexander Forbes. We are covering the second Hobtown mystery story, The Cursed Hermit, um, which at this point is <laughs> he's so freaking sorry. Cursed. I just had to shiver. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one is what coming out like 
within the next year, we think? Um, yeah, I, I had, haven't seen a timeline specifically. The only news I had seen is that Oni is going to be publishing them. Excuse me, Oni Press Lionforge is going to be publishing <laughs> them. And they've announced the titles. Sure. And it's about UFOs. So, oh, that's going to be good. And it's told in reverse chronological order. Sure. That's good, too. <laughs> I mean, that kind of is like a good segue into, I think I talked about at the end of the last one, that they seem to like doing not what you would expect them to do. And I do feel like this book also encapsulates a lot of that. I don't know how you found it. I really enjoyed it uh, this time around, but I was recalling that the first time I read it, I was sort of like, disappointed but i now look back and i'm like i think i was more just sort of like bewildered (laughs) because i remember getting it and being like whoa it's like half the size and then like starting to get into it and being like okay so like first move is like right half of the characters out of the story (laughs) i'm like oh (laughs) which it is it's such an interesting book i feel like because it it is half the size this i will say what I like about it is like it now is like the right form factor to be like a Nancy Drew mm-hmm. or a Hardy Boys where it's like kind of like paperback sized and it's what probably like 200 pages. Not even. Yeah. Not even. Yeah. yeah. I do. I Which do I- enjoy it a lot. Like coming back to it. I remember just finding it really confusing as well the first time around, but having just like much more recently reread um, Missing Men. I was sort of like, oh, this is actually all sort of like building on the sort of like larger Hobtown story that is like kind of the through line through this. And like, I didn't really remember that there was any like Miniman stuff in it at all. Um, right. Not to say nothing of a Tamagotchi Miniman, <laughs> the absolute biggest laugh I've maybe ever <laughs> gotten out of a comic. Um, dance. But uh, yeah, I I had just forgotten how much of that kind of like continued sort of lore building stuff there is in this. Um, I had also forgotten the extent to which it is sort of just a turn more into like straight pure horror. Not that there are no moments of levity at all, but like it is like because it's more of a sort of like ghost story, it feels to me at least. And it's so like claustrophobic with the school setting and taking away so many of the like allied characters it did feel to me like it was a little bit more so of a like straight up horror book as opposed to missing men which is like certainly has like some horror elements but is also kind of a detective story and is also kind of like uh like high school story and is also kind of a comedy and you know all that stuff yeah overall like my, my thought was like and i don't mean this as a negative really at all just that like it's a much less ambitious piece of work because it's not like the lore is less forefronted. It's not trying to like establish from whole cloth, a very like busy setting (laughs) because like the, the setting of like Hobtown is so like full and has so much stuff going on in it that like it, you know, the, the first book, a lot of times, and I think one of the strengths of the first book is just like, you never really know what's coming because it feels sort of like anything is possible in this world. Mm -hmm. Whereas this like drastically pairs it down. You know, we'll talk about the character thing, which is kind of crazy, but yeah, like this is an interesting one just because like it's, it's so pared down. 
It's focused more on just one thing. The mystery, I get your point. The mystery is sort of like less forefronted. Like we kind of have a good sense of what's going on more or less Mm -hmm. like halfway through probably. Yeah, not like exactly necessarily what's going on, but there's never a period where Pauline is like, this is great. It's like she gets there and she's like, this is messed. (laughs) Right. Um, So shall we do it? Well, yes, we we can. But I was just going to say, I think you're right that it is kind of like pared down and in some ways more focused and and less sort of like involved. But that is also in itself a funny decision, because I feel like this also sort of like expands the cosmology of the world and also is about sure. like the long lasting scars of colonialism. <laughs> Two mm. things about which it's funny to be like. And so they decided to just like kind of be a bit more simple. <laughs> with it. Yeah, I, well, I mean, like that is like. I feel like there are sort of elements of that in the first book. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, not remembering it too well, but I feel like, you know, it sort of establishes this sort of Canadiana mm-hmm. of it all. Well, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff with regards to like, um, I feel like the, the like indigenous people are a little bit more forefronted in um, case of the missing men. Um, Pauline being Acadian is like comes up, sort of like you know just sort of like in the background more so in the first one whereas in this one like because you're spending more time with her grandma like and and she is more kind of the viewpoint character in this one it gets a bit more uh you know focused on and like there's some there's some like things sort of along those lines as far as like you know the mayor has always been the mayor and there's this sort of like elitist group in the propeller club and even some talk about um like lord hob in that one but and like the pioneers day or pioneer days whatever it is um parade that they go to all of that stuff but in this one to like have <laughs> you know lord hob's ghost come up and be like you are yuck bloods but i'll eat you <laughs> Right. Yeah, it gets a lot more overt in like, especially like the the sort of colonialist idea, like definitely. And like, yeah, that sort of, I guess, ties into like classism, which is also mm-hmm. an element definitely. in the first one as well. But let's uh, let's do a quick plot summary here, I suppose. So after having solved the case of the missing men, it's now Christmas break in Hobtown and Pauline who is a member of the uh, the mystery club gets or the detective club gets invited but it's it's because Dana can't go. Yeah, so Dana was supposed to be invited but she's going on vacation and is not able to go so they invite Pauline instead. Right. So Dana is in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which <laughs> there's some very good like <laughs> subtle stuff not that subtle but like a lot of visual humor with her dad being in jamaica where like you see him topless and it's like oh he's got like a tattoo like a weird (laughs) tattoo on his chest and then like when they're on the plane back and he's like so sunburnt is also really funny he's really tan is my favorite (laughs) um but yeah and so pauline and then also brennan one of the two brothers is also at this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, like, it's like this weird, it's the Naughty Pines <laughs> is the name <laughs> of it. Um, which, like, you know, just seems like a weird sort of like boarding school, finishing school kind of thing. It's supposed but to be, a, like, almost like a, a, like, enrichment kind of like, you would expect it to be the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, but you would expect it to be the kind of thing where it's like, 
oh, you go to like Naughty Pines for a summer and get like a college credit. Right, exactly. And I think they do say that you get extra credit for some description for going there. So they go there and then it's sort of gradually revealed that the headmaster and headmistress of Naughty Pines are like using the children and like sucking their life force. But then also they like make them get married, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like a, a sort of like part of it that they're sort of like preserving the institution of marriage mm-hmm. kind of um, weaponized heteronormativity. Right, exactly. And then also there's a skeleton with a mortarboard. (laughs) Well, there's a few skeletons in this one. And certainly there is one wearing a mortarboard that also has a puppet arm (laughs) that it uses to scoop out people's brains and eat them. Uh, (laughs) So, yes, so they go they go to this school. It is clear to them that there is a variety of techniques that are being used to, like, brainwash them. And they ultimately uncover that. These the headmaster and headmistress are the children of Hobtown's founder, Lord Hob, who have sustained their lives by basically like feeding on the youthful life forces of the students who they bring to the school. But they also only eat like the leftovers of those life forces after they feed them to like the ghost of Lord Hob, who possesses the the skeleton that wears a mortar board just a great fit. Yeah, and and they have been doing this for many years. Uh other like alumni of the program, they recognize and are like, "Oh, they suck because they like don't <laughs> have any life force basically." Yeah, right. Like the idea is like they go back and are just like are boring and then also like get married and have kids, which I guess like sort of sustains mm-hmm. the the crop. And then so they encounter the ghost of a student who tried to like stop this plot in the past. Pauline, not Pauline. What's the ghost's name? Getty. Getty. That's right. Um, And they learn that the hermit, who is a sort of like Pioneer Days-esque fixture of the town. A a piece of folklore. Yeah, because once a year he like walks across the lake when it's frozen and they like sight him and are like, wow. They learn that he was also a student with Getty and with him, Pierre, uh, and Getty's ghost. They conspire to uh, stop this this ritual that has been going on. Pauline uses her psychic powers to sort of facilitate that as well. Um, and ultimately, Pierre basically traps Lord Hobbes' ghost in his own body and then like throws himself off the cliff that <laughs> Naughty Pines is on. He goes Legion mode. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's not the comics character. <laughs> the comics character or not the comics not the, character? Right. Not yeah, the I, comics I got character. That. The biblical figure. Yeah. The biblical demon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So he goes Legion mode. Uh, Lord Hobbes children turn into old people and are taken to <laughs> like a nursing home or just the hospital, hospital? I guess. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, the rest of the detective club reunites. And of course, this is all also like, I feel like the really big sort of section as it pertains to the more sort of overarching Hobtown thing is that kind of extended dream sequence that Pauline has where she like sees the (laughs) Lovecraftian horror that declares itself to be the god of Hobtown. She sees like visions of herself in the future. She sees 
like some sort of compact between a mini man and humankind. And of course, we also see that seemingly good mini man assisting them in some capacity by delivering her letter that she sends to Dana in Jamaica to alert her of all of this. Um, we see there that really the, is the guy walking around with the stick is also uh, apparently a friend of the little man, an agent of good. Yeah. So, so yeah, there it is, is nothing I'm, funnier than a mini man. I will say, yeah, the mini man, I mean the Tamagotchi mini man again, it just absolutely uh, sends me as the kids say, that's my favorite uh, Lin Manuel Miranda song. The Tamagotchi. Tamagotchi Mini, Mini oh, okay. Man. <laughs> he was a Tamagotchi Mini Man. So I do think that in terms of kind of like, you know, we see a lot of stuff in this that I just think that like in the first one, they have a very good handle on knowing sort of like when to give you answers and when to give you like more questions, questions. basically. Yeah. And I think that they do a good job of both like you come out of this feeling like, wow, I know a lot more sort of about kind of like how Hobtown works, I guess, in theory. But then when you start to think about like, wait, so what have I actually learned? It's like, well, the Minimen do more than I thought they did. And also like Lord Hop has something to do with it. And there's some kind of like eldritch power. But then like the all three of those things are like, so wait, what exactly like why does Lord Hob have this power and why does he use it? Why is there now a good mini man? Are there like factions of mini men? That's weird. Like is Lord Hob that that eldritch god or is that, that something else? Like what's with the wagon? <laughs> are we going to see adult Pauline again? Yeah, there's so you you agreed that that is adult Pauline and like old Pauline? Well, we they both have the mole. And at the end, oh, at, right. at first I was like, well, maybe I, I was kind of like, it must be like an ancestral thing. I was kind of like, maybe that's like young grandma. But then I flipped sure. back and young grandma doesn't have the mole. And then at the end, or old grandma or other and doesn't have the mole. she's speaking French. Yeah. And then at the end, uh, Pauline has now like sprouted the mole <laughs> that the other two people funny. in her her way station as she calls it had right um yeah i feel like it's like they have a good like sort of thematic understanding of like you know like i i assume they probably do have like a lot of the answers sort of charted out but more than anything else i feel like where like sort of big overarching mystery stories can sometimes lose the plot is that like the thematic grounding of like what the mystery is can sort of get lost in it. Whereas I feel like this, it's like they've Oh, it's almost always sort of been clear what the thematic grounding is like this idea of like an insular community, like sort of this like distrust or like dislike of outsiders, like xenophobia and this sort of like tradition, like everything's very like steeped in tradition in like a kind of sinister way. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that all sort of ties in here and like strengthens the sort of overall feeling. And then, you know, we get a more explicit explanation from uh, the, the groundskeeper or what's, what's his name? Oh, uh, Mr. Something. <laughs> Mr. Coops. Is that right? Um, anyways, the, the groundskeeper is like, basically he's, he talks about this basically Mayflower esque figure mm -hmm. and says, if you didn't come on the boat with them, then like you're an outsider by default. 
Um, and, you know, obviously there are some sort of uh, thematic hints at colonialism there. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's some other stuff sort of peppered throughout the book, but sort of this idea of like white upper crust or even just like it's I, I don't know how to describe it except Canadian, mm-hmm. <laughs> like sort of like Canadian culture, like Canadian white culture sort of like steeped in that, which sort of leads to this natural sort of like, like I said, like xenophobic almost uh, feeling. Yep, I agree. Lenny is uh, is the caretaker's name. Mr. Combs. Uh, I Lenny Combs. Good old Lenny Combs. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I also think that like, you know, as we have talked about many times on here, like I think that a lot of times with a mystery, a poorly handled revelation is kind of inevitably going to be disappointing. And what seems to be, I mean, who knows, maybe, maybe it will turn out in the end that they're like, and here's what was up with everything. But I do feel like it's less so about like the, none of the stories are about figuring out like, this is exactly what's going on in all of its detail and more like, just sort of following the the kids as they figure out like just enough in order to know how to stop it. And a lot of the stuff like we will never really like get explained or get total answers for, or even like necessarily come to know what like the origins of whatever this stuff is exactly, which I think is basically a good way of just sort of sidestepping that whole problem of having like, and now like we pull back the curtain for the grand reveal um, and having yeah. it just be like, Oh, okay (laughs) Um, or or anything you know either one way or the other it's not it doesn't feel like they're seeding clues so that you can like sort of figure it out it feels like everything that's in there is to help like kind of further set the tone further build sort of like the the mythology of the world itself and and sort of like i guess lend weight to the kind of like folklore and sort of like wives tale you know um supernaturality of it all yeah and you know like um we talked about david lynch in the last episode i famously did not know that on the back cover it says nancy drew meets david lynch <laughs> um but I, I do feel like you know my main david lynch experience is blue velvet which is like a mystery movie mixed with a horror movie. And I feel like it does a similar thing in that movie, both because like it sort of has the idea of like an idyllic small town or maybe it's not, it is a small town sort of like being presented as having like a sinister underbelly. But then also I think the idea of sort of like this pervasive almost like lore that like we don't that we are not totally privy to and it's like there is a mystery but it's less about solving the mystery Mm -hmm. and more about just like you just like come across all these things yeah it's a there's there's like a secret history and the goal of the characters is not to like learn the full truth of the secret history it's it's to like stop these really bad things that are happening from happening Exactly. Like the the threat is much more imminent and then the mystery can just like remain the overarching mystery rather than being like a destination. Mm-hmm. It's like the destination is each individual thing and then the mystery is just like looming over it or like somehow impacting everything. And it's like 
we do basically understand what's going on at this point. Like Mm -hmm. there's some kind of evil supernatural force, which is related to the idea of like Hobtown being this like place that is sort of fed upon. And also that like the original Hobtonians are like (laughs) somehow special or like set apart. Yeah. And, and kind of controlling things uh, to a, a certain extent sure the other thing that i found interesting you know and we you know we sort of alluded to this but cutting out half the cast and specifically like very much sidelining sam who is basically like you know you would have said after the first book like if you someone asked you who the main character was you'd say it's sam like he is such a like adventure book kind of figure mm-hmm. where it's like he has like all these assets and can like create gadgets and i mean i might have said dana but it's like sam and dana for sure sure and then yeah and those two characters specifically are the ones that get cut out but yeah especially sam to me it feels like is just like he has sort of shifted and obviously like with his uh the injuries he sustained in the first book he no longer like has the same mobility as everyone else like he has his crazy like ATV thing. His mobility device mm-hmm. is crazy. Which is also like <laughs> like a robot, basically. <laughs> sure. But yeah, but he like is just like cut into the picture, which I think I thought was a very interesting move. And like, I guess sort of lending credence to the idea that like it's an ensemble and that the especially like that the side characters are not just supporting characters that they are like main characters in their own right as well Mm -hmm. yes certainly i'll I'll be interested to see if in the next one like they do a similar thing and kind of like continue to sort of like shift the spotlight around to different members of the club or what yeah i'll I'll be interested to see because it does now feel like sort of between the two books denny has kind of now become the one that has never really sort of been fully in the spotlight it does also feel like, you know, Pauline maybe was not as front and center as Sam and Dana were in the first one, but she was sort of like easily third, really? I guess I would say. Oh, I see. And, and now it, to have her like so central in this one, it almost feels like, well, maybe she's the main character. I mean, not to say right. that there has to be like a main character for the series, right. but it is interesting to see how they have sort of continued to shift around sort of who's who's in focus and who's not. Um, and I'll be interested to see what they do with that in uh, in future volumes. Yeah. And like, you know, it is her and Brennan, but like she really does get centralized more than either Dana or Sam did the first one. I feel like, you know, it's interesting because just I'm looking at the way that the, the Hobtown Junior Detective Club is laid out. And maybe this is just like a hierarchical thing, but it almost feels right that it's like Dana, Dana Nance, head chair, Pauline Larmier, treasurer, Brennan Hale, secretary, Denny Hale, member. And then it's like with or and Sam Finch, honorary member, like he's he's the (laughs) the one who gets special billing. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's like the way that the hierarchy is sort of like meant to break down that it's like. Sam sort of gets highlighted in the first book and then he becomes like the the and Mm -hmm. and then the main characters are kind of like Dana and Pauline. I buy it. And of course, it's always nice to see them uh, having their their friend time at the start of the book, hanging out, Mm -hmm. getting gifts. 
kaleidoscoping it up. <laughs> I, I was there. kind of like, hmm, interesting. Maybe because we've just uh, gone tilly mode. Yeah, it, it's so, possible. So to see like two girls of the same age lying on a bed, it's like, well, obviously they're in love. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's it's interesting because like I was wondering if it was going to be like, well, like I'm not interested in Brennan, right? So like this idea that of like because there is so sort of like that, like you said, like this idea of heteronormativity being like weaponized as like an evil thing. It is funny to also be like, and maybe there were hints of a gay relationship, but mm-hmm. also she does seem genuinely like infatuated with Brennan. And so, yeah. And so I'm not sure where that's going to, or I guess if it's going to lead anywhere necessarily, but you know, they, they do seem to have an interest in exploring that kind of ground because like, you know, if there just weren't any relationships, I'd be like, that's normal. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it did feel like something that was sort of, um, not absent, I guess, from the the first volume, but I do. I mean, it it is often sort of like the way that things that are sort of signaling, like it's like this thing for kids, but for adults is to be like, and you know, because they have sex. Um, sure. And the first volume is like pretty asexual, which you know, the the like novels that they're taking their inspiration from are also pretty asexual, generally speaking. Sure. Not to say that they are free of like any romance at all, but it's always you know very chaste and and childlike uh, romance as befits a children's book. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wasn't necessarily like surprised per se that that became an element in the second one, um, but it is used in such a way as to be like. You know, reproduction is uh, is <laughs> part of like conformity, which is part of like uh, you know advancing this uh, eldritch evil, <laughs> right? Yeah, sort of that idea that, like you said, that conformity is like the evil almost. Mm-hmm. It does. It there's a certain sort of like punky element to it, as befits its sort of status as an Indian underground comic that. You know, there's there's lots of authority defiance, of course, like we talked in the first one that I guess sort of like refusing to conform to like expectations of growing up into adulthood is sort of like what drives most of the members of the detective club where they're like, I don't want to be like the adults in my life because the adults in my life are sad and are part of like what makes this town a sad place. So certainly that sort of like tone and and vibe continues do i sense that you're now looking at what i yes. have sent to you so hobtown.com exists it is set up as ostensibly like the school's website as it would have been designed in like 1993 <laughs> 1996 please excuse me 1996 um so it is done up in like oh i'm actually seeing here that it's copyright 1998 so it is yeah like written in just like straight html and looks like a like angel fire web page and also is like the official website but clearly done by students and then there's also lots of stuff here where like you start at the top and it's like welcome to our school here's where we're located we are like a family and like a picture of a high school and then you scroll down and there's a big (laughs) 
thing that says warning the municipal government is trying to take over this website if you come back to hobtown.com and it is a bunch of stuff about the town and not the school it is because the teachers took a bribe from them (laughs) and then you scroll down further there's like lots of pictures more stuff like links to other pages all of which work and are extremely funny and then at the very bottom there's a big sign that says warning if you are here about the detection club look elsewhere they keep spreading lies and making up new pages on this site using the world wide web and they don't have permarison their ideas and secret codes have been pulled down off the site so look elsewhere as they say <laughs> so this is just a very funny thing that i don't know who made it I mean, I assume that, but like the commitment to the bit represented by this site is like so, so unparalleled because like even right down to like at the very bottom, I mentioned the copyright. It's like copyright 1998, all rights reserved ideas and website created by Beth Barb and all images, Beth Barb Industries or Barbie maybe. But anyways, but like I'm assuming that Beth Barb is not a real person. It's just like if this was done for anything that was not like a completely independent and artistic project. That is where you would at least have like a link to like the quote unquote real website or like right. the actually, you know, some, some accreditation to like whoever had actually made it. But it is like, there's so many pages <laughs> that all work um, or mostly all and, work. And, are, but also like are all jokes. Yeah. In, in like a very like Hobtown Mystery Stories cadence. Like if you go to the school club page, it's yeah. like coming soon. Lots of the clubs in school will get their own websites. We're waiting on them, to be honest. <laughs> like I feel like it's, it's like a very funny, like Hobtown-y kind of joke. And also the, if you go to the faculty page, it says faculty. Yeah, there's it's so like, many typos on it, which is all very it's funny. Like, it's such a funny, subtle joke. Also, the homepage link is in black font on a black background. <laughs> I just noticed. Um, but then, like, like the, the faculty page is like <laughs> so her good. message to someone else she's working on the website with, like within the canon of like this website. Yeah, and there's lots of like, like under I construction. Text. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of like under construction signs everywhere. And like some of the pages are not finished. Oh, here's a section on Naughty Pines. Yeah, I saw that as well. Um, but yeah, like there's so much. There's so much. Oh, stuff. Yeah, is that what you're talking about? How there's like this whole thing about like there's a there's like a full paragraph about Naughty Pines and all the things you get to do there. And then at the end, it says something like that. But get spell checker on it. It doesn't work when you have a picture in here. <laughs> it's if you go to the if you click on the faculty page sorry i bumped my mic there Uh, if you click on the faculty page then you'll see what i'm talking about where that does say coming soon but there is a link there Uh that is just a paragraph about like (laughs) i i can't get the website to work uh yeah so i don't know if they made this i don't know like i found this because it was like I'm sure I'm sure they have like provided the content um, or a lot of the content. And I did find it because there's like a link to it on Chris Burton's website, but it is just like, so such an incredible (laughs) achievement of, of commitment to the bit of like, you know, expanding It, it, it all contributes to like making it feel like a more lived in world. 
what is this? This is oh. <laughs> the, the school mascot, the biting fish. Yeah. Yeah. The the school mascot is the biting fish. I don't know. I'll, I'll tweet out about uh, this, you know, after sure. the website has gone up. But it is uh, very funny, very good. And it just pleases me to to no end that it exists. <laughs> yeah. And the three old pictures being uh, Benedict Hobb, an old photo that is ostensibly taken from National Geographic magazine, mm-hmm. and then Halloween Goblin. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the photo of Lord Hobb also is like, I wonder Weird. I wonder who did this because it really does look like the you know right but it also like seems like it could be like a modern picture that they like edited to make look old yeah that like, like someone could have just possible as well who who <sighs> can say who can say it's anyways so the hoptown website I recommend it highly. It's so good. Yes, it is just hoptown.com. Uh, it is just hoptown.com. But I wanted to make sure that we talked about that because I saw it after we did the last episode and it tickled me so much. <laughs> yes, it's very good. Um, what else about the comic? What uh, else I famously about- said I didn't want to spend too long on this episode, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I did really enjoy it. Like, so yeah, let's talk like the idea of shrinking down the scope. I think it works well here because and like you said, it became a straight horror book, but I do think that it also like focuses in on the mystery so much more mm-hmm. and has more like clue hunting than the other ones do. Like, because it's, I think like you said, the confined space and like such a sort of specific mystery they're uncovering rather than being like, why is Hobtown so crazy? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that like sort of allows you to have more of a classic mystery thing where it's like, I found a clue that like suggests they might be doing this, but why? There's a lot of snooping in this book, I guess. There is. There's a lot of snooping. There's a lot of like, and in some ways it is like, almost even more so in kind of like the Nancy Drew mold because like you get that sort of like, um, you know, the, the timelessness of kind of like a big old school and even just like the notion of like a boarding school is, is sort of like old fashioned in its own right. And, and like the, the idea of this school that hasn't changed since, you know, what it would have been like back in Nancy Drew times, (laughs) um, which is like ostensibly, like Getty and um, and Pierre would have been like Nancy Drew contemporaries, basically at or or you know at one point of Nancy Drew's sort of like history, <laughs> sure. which is lengthy. But so I do like I do appreciate in some ways the the shrinking of the scope and the the sort of narrowing of the focus. And yeah, it's it's also just like an interesting genre flip where I don't know exactly how I would not not genre flip, but like, I'm not sure how exactly I would characterize the first one. I guess it's sort of, it is sort of like a missing person's mystery slash like a murder mystery type of thing with a supernatural bent. Whereas this one is very much like a ghost story. And it may be that that sort of like more supernatural element sort of lends itself kind of more naturally to 
uh, some of those more kind of horror-y characteristics. I mean, who knows? Like maybe with the UFO kind of focus of the next one, that might take on a bit more of kind of like a conspiracy thriller sort of right. uh, a bent. Not that I mean, they all kind of have a little bit of conspiracy elements uh, to them. Yeah, but, thus the, far, but the first but, one definitely more so than this one. Yeah. Um, like how much supernatural stuff was even in the first one? Like I'm thinking about it now. It's like obviously the Mini Man, which but the Mini Man is also like. Only some people can see it. Yeah. And then the same thing at the end where there's like the like growth under the sink. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really just like the mini man and his cursed shawarma, which I assume like spawned him and and Pauline's like, you know, ESP. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of abilities are, are pretty much all there is. Whereas in this, like, you know, there's a ghost floating around. There's the spooky Skellington. There's like Lord Hobb making his appearance. There's like the weird plants that seem to like compose him. Right. I kind of thought when I first saw those, I was like, oh, they plant those seeds and they grow into the funky shawarma. But um, unclear if that is the the case or not. And then, of course, like funky magic shawarma verse. <laughs> I like it. Um, but like with all of Pauline's psychic stuff continuing, you then also get like, again, kind of the more cosmic, the vision of, uh, yeah. And know, the vision the sort of gets expanded God. as well. Yeah. The whole like thing with the wagon is weird, but also like very good thematically because like, you know, she has this weird dream where, Brennan turns into her husband and tries to get her to come on the wagon. And there's like a little baby Pauline that appears. He's like, get on the wagon. And then there's this like zombie that sticks her head out and is like, I'm you because I didn't get on the wagon. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. And that sort of like gets back to the whole thing. Like the like pioneer Mm -hmm. colonial like concept of it all. I feel like is sort of like, revisiting that as well Mm -hmm. like i feel like it may be not in the next book but in a book soon we're going to get a little more about like the original hobtown settlers and like what their deal is which i think will be good Mm -hmm. yeah um art wise still very strong still very Mm -hmm. you know all of the stuff we said last time it was funny because maybe it is because there is more sort of like visceral and kind of like horror-y images and some stuff that is like very gross outy. I'm again kind of looking at the the wagon scene specifically, but this one reminded me more than previous ones of uh Charles Burns, who I think you probably are not familiar with. Maybe maybe we'll talk about him sometime. But um Burns. He did a book called Black Hole, which is about it's basically about like STIs and like teenage sexuality and uh, you know this like weird disease that is getting passed amongst the the kids at this high school in this small town and it is also in black and white he has like a really thick line compared to I would say um most of like what is in this but it does have like a similar sort of like texture to it um, that some of the, especially some of the more sort of like supernatural scenes in this one have, but maybe I'm also just thinking of it because there is a similar sort of like, it's normal except for the weird supernatural thing that happens in some parts. They like grow tails and stuff. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, it all like I feel like the art also like very consistently makes me laugh. Like it is so in keeping with like the style of book and the style of humor in the book. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's funny. Like know, I, it's almost so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's just for some of the more like side characters, but I was also like, it's almost like Beavis and Buttheady sometimes when, yeah, especially totally. like with the teenage boys, it uh, does almost feel like <laughs> homage in that way. In, in the same way that I think we talked about in the last one, there are some parts of it that felt kind of like King of the Hill adjacent, which was maybe a bit more fitting because it was like there were more adult characters. It was more kind of focused on the sort of like rural town setting. Um, So to have it shift its focus more so onto like obnoxious teenage boys in sections of this book, it is funny to then also look at it and be like, huh, kind of, kind of Beavis and Buttheady or even like Daria E because there's like a girl in this book who is (laughs) got a real like Daria aesthetic to her. Sure. I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's interesting. That's a funny thing to bring up because, like, you know, a bit of like the sort of intentional ugliness. And I also feel like, you know, it is sort of like intentionally dumb in some ways. Or like, you know, like, it sort of like does that political or like social mm-hmm. satire as well. Like, it has that, those elements of it. Um, so I, I do feel like that's a good call. And also, like, it's one of those things where it's like, this is clearly smart, but it also like it. It's not like being stupid to make fun of stupidness. Mm-hmm. It's like it is also funny to be stupid. Yeah, certainly, yeah. I'm. I'm also now kind of thinking that it is funny that like it is calling to mind some of these more like '90s ish type properties between like Black Hole and Beavis and Butthead and Daria and things like that. Because I wouldn't have ever said that this art is like. 90s evocative per se but it is kind of in in that sort of like countercultural 90s kind of way it, right. it does have like a certain lineage there that as i sort of think more about it and look at it more i'm like i guess you know you can kind of see where some of those i don't even like i hesitate to even call them influences because i don't think that like Forbes is like sitting here drawing and being like, I'm going to do some like Beavis and Butthead type stuff. But like it does, there is sort of like, I guess more of a nineties vibe in these than maybe first like meets underground the comics almost. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of like those, like people who worked on Beavis and Butthead would probably say that like something like R. Crumb or like Peter Baggy or like one of these other very sort of like cynical, shocking humor based underground comics artists. Like I I'm sure a lot of them read those guys or like engaged with some of that work and were influenced by them in their own right. So it is kind of like a funny lineage and cross pollination. And, you know, you can, you can kind of see how the, the different eras and different media are all kind of in conversation with each other. Underground comics often are sort of satirically, using the art style of like an early Disney mm-hmm. or like, you know, like I guess like Cuphead is like yeah. what it makes me think of, which like sort of like golden age of animation, I guess you would call yeah. it. Like that that it's it's using that art style as well in like an ironic way. And so I feel like that it's like in turn drawing from that as well. Like like you said, there's a whole like lineage to it mm-hmm. almost. 
I, I do also think it is sort of like an achievement unto itself that, you know, we talked about the art in the first book, like being very lush and being like sort of a tour de force. And I think this one is just as much so, and maybe even more so because you do get a similar kind of like a lot of forest stuff, you know, the whole sort of like Christmas vacation, snow covered, you know, vistas type thing. But also because they spend so much of the book at Naughty Pines, which is this like, Mm -hmm. you know, very stately sort of like manor house. Like there's all these crazy wallpapers, like constantly all the time. Like everything is very ornate and sort of like regal and, and all that stuff. And you even get like, you know, some pretty some pretty big sort of like show offy shots, like when she goes up to the like the honey uh, be attic that the headmistress keeps like that's a crazy page there's just like it's not just that there's like a ton of lines on every page which gives like kind of that heavy effect that we talked about in the first one in this one it's like there's a ton of heavy lines and also there's like crazy wallpaper patterns <laughs> that are like right. behind every page but it's not like distracting it feel like it seems like it would be really easy for those things to like completely consume every single panel and have it be like every time you look at it it's like a completely confusing and jumbled mess but i feel like the only times where the wallpaper especially and like the like kind of heavy designs becomes sort of like overwhelming is the times when it is like very deliberately meant to be like you know evoking the the kaleidoscope and the sort of like twisting of reality right. type of sort of you know that that kind of surreal right very effect. much so and like i feel was i was it the first top town mysteries that we talked about this idea where it's like it almost at times i said it looked like like a cartoon like drawn on top of a photo almost <laughs> like we, um, we i think we've talked about this a couple yeah, times we have we and about i do it think this was one of them for sure yeah where there was like it, like you feel separation between the foreground and the background because of like the contrast but with this one i agree like it is much more like i feel like there's much more unity there i feel like you know they the, most of the time you're outside is at night or in the winter where there's sort of like an overcast sky mm-hmm. and so i feel like they do sort of like simplify the backgrounds not in a sense of like detail because obviously like you said like the the wallpaper the part where they're sort of unveiling the dead body that's like hidden in the wall mm-hmm. The like brick is very has like a very detailed render to it, and a lot of close up shots will have a ton of line work that like makes it very detailed. Yeah. But it does feel more of a piece with itself, and like you know, like I I feel like I talk a lot about sort of like a unified aesthetic in terms of like the art, the narrative, and I guess the dialogue like sort of goes along with that, and like the themes. And I feel like even more so than the first one, which did have like a certain off kilterness, which is like very much unified within like those three ideas. I feel like this one really like hits the mark on all three of those. Mm -hmm. I saw um, someone compare the art in this to like vintage dungeons and dragons, which I thought was funny or specifically uh, Earl Otis or Errol Otis, who I guess is kind of one of the, uh, the sort of like original uh, book 
<laughs> artists. I can't remember what I'm, what word I'm trying yeah. to find here. But oh, and I'm seeing here that he has also done RPG. some designs for Obey Clothing. <laughs> sure. You've seen that stuff, right? Yeah, the big face, Shepherd Fairy. Sure. There's this. Take your word for do you it. know the movie Exit to the Gift Shop? Yeah, that he's like featured in that. He's the Obey guy. Uh, anyways, uh, he. Earl Otis, for whatever it's worth, was a runner-up at TSRs. They have a contest to choose the game's best overall dungeon master. <laughs> I don't know what that would entail, but I like the idea. Um, but yeah, it's funny that you bring up Earl Otis, who did work, uh, you know, you worked like on early Dungeons & Dragons stuff, because my thought was also, this does feel a little bit like like an RPG entry like this feels like a session or like a mystery because like it's self-contained it's a new location but it also sort of like extends an overarching story and then the thing that really made me think of it is i think it's in monster of the week that like one of the things you can have is that like your character will like receive a flash forward like a premonition (laughs) of things that will like are going to come in the adventure and like when she had her little like psychic episode i was like oh she's like this character and like we're sort of going to like see her premonition of things that are going to come Mm -hmm. to pass and so it felt like very much like that kind of storytelling in a positive way i think like well i'm i'm laughing that you say that because that is how i also felt about case of the missing men where i was like this is in some ways like a perfect like module basically where it's, it's sure. sort of like you can fit it into, you know, a, a broader world if you want in terms of having it be like, there's all this mystery stuff that you can continue delving into, or it can kind of just be a one-off thing where it's like, mm-hmm. well, we stopped like the monster that was killing people and we're moving on. Um, but like, Basically, like I was DMing uh, a game that you were playing in with some other friends of ours, and I spent some time basically toying with like the sort of general structure of the story in terms of like there's mysterious deaths and like uh, people seem to like know more than they're saying, and it ties into basically this this kind of like game slash like war between two factions who are sort of trying to control uh, forces that are beyond their their scope to control and have kind of lost control of things resulting in, you know, these kind of extra deaths that, that I was kind of like, this does make a sort of easy kind of like, you know, one-off adventure that you can, you can cover. And it's just like a good, it's a very good story hook basically to, to have it be yeah. like, and or and it's not even that it's like a, a hook into the adventure itself. It's just such a satisfying, like, reveal i guess in some ways where it's like there's a there's so much more to the mystery than you initially tie into and the kind of realization that like nobody really knows what's going on is in some ways like a more satisfying conclusion than having someone come out at the end and be like here's what was going on and and i think that that is like just as true in this one i also think that like something that both of the two books have in common is really nailing the sort of like denouement um where i talked in the last one like you know when you see that they give the guy a name in this one that i can't remember but you see the guy with the stick like walking out of town is kind of like the ending and it's so like such a heavy like downbeat and so sinister in some ways and then you get something kind of like similar in this one where 
you know, Pauline Terry Bags. This is yes, it. of course. <laughs> Pauline <laughs> is is so like kind of traumatized by this whole experience and has been like made sort of so paranoid by it that she's like, did Dana know like what was going to happen and somehow arrange to like use me as a shield for herself like it shakes her her sort of like trust in everyone and everything and you have dana who has that sort of like chance encounter with the headmistress now as an old lady who (laughs) calls her a yuck blood but it's sort of like you only i guess you only know per se that it's the headmistress because like she's with her brother she's wearing the earrings and she says yuck blood which is like a very you know distinct thing but it is sort of like but she could just be any old lady in the town where it's like yeah sure like the head the headmaster and headmistress and everything at the school was sort of like an elevated evil that was so you know dark and oppressive and tied into this big kind of eldritch horror thing but even after that's been defeated, like they're really just kind of a scaling up of a kind of like evil and hate that is pervasive through, through the whole town. And when they become just sort of like another old lady, they're still like weirdly malevolent and like aggressive in a way that like any old lady theoretically kind of has the power to be. And, and even like, yeah, like to end it with her giving her the painting and it's this very kind of like, somber landscape of the hermit it's it's just again a very good sort of like you know no easy answers no like resolution for you know these these experiences and and traumas and horrors that they have experienced it's like it's still not solved there's still you know the bigger mystery and the bigger conflict is still unresolved and i think they just do a good job of like it's not like Brian K. Vaughn kind of like cliffhangery, like I must read the next volume type of continuation of the storytelling per se, but it is, there's just something that's very like, I get like, you kind of finish it and you're like, it can't like stay like this. I need, <laughs> I need another volume because like, I can't let these sweet baby angels like continue to live in Hoptown. <laughs> sure. Um, and like to sort of what you were saying earlier I think the other thing that makes us be like this, to, like that gives the RPG feeling is the town is so fleshed out. Like, I mean, this is sort of a weird thing to say maybe, but it's almost like the town is a character. Mm. Would you say it's, I don't know if anyone's ever said this almost before. Like the sixth member of the, it's the sixth detective. <laughs> the town is the sixth um, detective. <laughs> well, of course the characters but, yeah, go, like the, uh Dana, Pauline, Brennan, Denny, and Sam with Hobtown and Miniman. With <laughs> and introducing Miniman as himself. Introducing Tamagotchi as the Miniman. <laughs> sure. Thomas Gotchi. Tom Agachi. <laughs> Tom A. Gotchi. Um but yeah, like like the setting is so fleshed out and feels so complete. And I think that's why we get that feeling is because it's like, you know, even though I like the characters, it's almost like you can drop anyone in here and it's interesting Mm -hmm. by virtue of the town, the mystery surrounding the town and like the characterizations of the supporting characters and the villains being so interesting that I think that's what like makes it so effective. Yeah, it is. It does kind of have the same thing as D&D where it's like, 
if you care to like dig into it in D&D, there's like so much lore. There's like all this cosmos stuff about it's like, like the weekenders. <laughs> you've made that joke before. <laughs> um, there's all this stuff about like, you know, the different planes and dimensions and like all like every single God in the whole like pantheon and all what their whole deal is and their conflict with other gods and like, you know, a kind of like Silmarillion esque sort of like level of backstory to everything. But it's also put out there in a way of like, this is here if you like want it, but most of the stories that kind of take place in this world are not going to be concerned with that stuff. It's going to be concerned with like, you know, the, the Lord of this town is a bad dude or whatever. <laughs> um, and that stuff is all kind of part of like populating the world and making it feel like an immersive place for you to play your game and informing kind of like the, the in world stuff behind, like, this is why you people can do magic. This is why this blah, blah, blah. But it's more there to kind of be a sort of texture for most people. And I think that like it's weird to talk about Hobtown as like a place that needs world building because it's like it's a it's a town of 2000 people in rural Nova Scotia. Like there you go. World built in some ways. Yeah. But I think they do such a good job of giving it the additional texture because of all of this like you know, other horror and, and cosmic stuff and like just the society sort of at large um, within Hobtown that, yeah, that, that makes it feel lived in in a way that often doesn't get done effectively, even in stories that are just like about <laughs> real places, basically. Sure. Anything else? Anything else? Um... Yeah, I, I don't think so, other than to say, like, great book, love these books, can't wait for more. Yeah. If Hoptown has a million like, fans, I am one of them. If it has one town, <laughs> that fan is, I mean, one fan, it is me. <laughs> <laughs> if it, the Hoptown's population one, I'm in town. <laughs> Hoptown has no fans, then Mini Man is no longer on this earth. <laughs> then, then Mini Man has gotten me and gone back to sleep in his shawarma. <laughs> Oh, yeah. like and retweet. Like and retweet. Or I love these books, and I'm glad that we talked right about here. them. And I. This is your favorite part. I'm looking forward for more of them to come out so that I can talk about more of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any any sales to report? No, I tried to find stuff on this, but uh, again, it's just, it's not like. If you walk into your comic shop, you like might not not only might you not find this book, they might not have ever even heard of this book. Uh, not to say that like that's what's weird is like part of me is like, why haven't I heard of this? And then part of me is like, how has anyone heard of this? <laughs> yeah. And like, how did this ever get made? It, uh, Which is maybe a good idea for a podcast. That is actually good. You know what? We should flip to the uh, acknowledgements in the back and see down. if this guy. How did this ever get made? <laughs> uh, did you see that? Uh, Jason Manzoukas is in the special thanks at the back. Yes, I did. We love it. Yeah, I I think that sales wise, it is largely done through non comic store venues, and again, it is like a more indie and kind of underground title. So I'm not surprised that it does not notch on Comicron. But who knows? Like with the move to Oni Press, um, 
you know, we might see that change in the future. I think that also is like emblematic of the fact that it's like, this isn't like an unknown book per se, if that makes sense. Like if you go around looking for it, you'll find like it's covered both by kind of like Canadian newspapers, including like some fairly large newspapers like Globe and Mail had a, a piece on it. London Free Press <laughs> had something about it, which is crazy and funny. But it is also covered by like some fairly large comic sites as well, like um, The Beat, which is kind of like a, yeah, a fairly large sort of like comics news and reviews site did like a review on it and covered it. But yeah, I, th- I think oh, no. that a move to a different publisher here might raise the profile a bit. Nothing against Conundrum, who published lots of great books, including my beloved Paul. Um, but they are like a more so Canadian publisher and a, a smaller publisher for sure, even compared to something like Oni. So, yeah, I do think that the profile of this will probably continue to go up. Hopefully. Uh, I have some bad news. What is the news? We've once again been... Sniped? Sniped by the back cover. Uh, in, in keeping with the tradition of Nancy Drew meets David Lynch, mm-hmm. uh, Doom Rocket says that this is like... It's proper and professional, but it's also punk, they say. If Ted Stern was working with P.T. Anderson... Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I know who P.T. Anderson is... Who's Ted Stern? <laughs> I looked up Ted Stern, and he's a cartoonist and animator best known for his work on Beavis and Butthead <laughs> and Daria. <laughs> well, I mean, it does at least make me feel like, you know. You're not crazy. Not, not only am I not crazy, but like, well, hey, I noticed the same thing that people who are smart enough to get quoted on the back cover noticed. <laughs> sure. Yeah, darn, should have should have Googled that. Cause I did read that uh that blurb and was like, huh, Liquid Television, Ted Stern, Lookout Records, three things I have never, never heard, heard of. of. I should Google <laughs> yeah. these things. <laughs> but uh but never got around to it. Uh well, I I thought you were gonna say we got sniped Opasaga style and someone had like just tweeted like it's coming they out just published today. <laughs> Um, it actually came out yesterday and we missed it. Yeah, that would be a big darn. But uh, but yeah, nothing more to say about these particularly, other than they're great and we love them. Yeah. Let's get one nominated for something. Do let's. That could be our campaign. Truly, let's get these nominated for something. He's got to, come on, a Schuster at the very least. Sure. Give, give the homies a Schuster. Um, yeah, Nike can't win all of them. <laughs> I'm leaving Schuster that full. Si- yeah, I, I'm leaving that full <laughs> silence in uh, in the edit. Okay. Um, good, good, good. Next week, we are beginning the Brew Baker post cap series with his work. No on cap. X Men and that. Yeah, that is no cap. And we will, of course, you should call it the Brew Baker no cap series. Beginning with X Men Deadly Genesis number one to six and Uncanny X Men number four seventy five to number 486 so 16 issues uh of mid 2000s x-men which should provide sufficient (laughs) material for about four hours of conversation (laughs) 
Yeah. It'll literally just be like, okay. And then on page 21 of issue 491, they reference this guy. And who is that? (laughs) (laughs) There will be a lot of that. This is, uh, of course, the origin of uh, X-Men first class standout character Darwin. (laughs) He he pops up in Deadly Genesis for the first time. So we'll talk about him a lot. I haven't seen... X-Men First Class, or maybe I've seen it once since the theater, but I do always remember Darwin. <laughs> he sticks his head in the water tank and grows gills, but then he totally jobs to Sebastian Stan. Not Sebastian Stan, whole- Sebastian Shaw. <laughs> his whole power is based around being able to survive anything. And then he dies instantly. And, like, dies from just, like, being zapped too hard. <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense that it's like there's an upper threshold that like even his mutation can only handle so much. But when you I look at it, it's just funny. That, yeah, like, I hate to I hate to be a like power level in the comics. But when you look at the stuff that he survives in the comics, <laughs> I can see why the well, like, like, it's like big Darwin heads are like, what? That's what killed the whole thing. It truly is his whole thing. It is his whole thing. So lots of Darwin talk forthcoming and uh Oh, we're going to have to talk about like the third summer's brother. We're going to have to, if, if you, uh, all you listeners just go out and listen to every episode of Jay and miles explain the X-Men before <laughs> next episode, that will save us a lot of time. But, uh, assuming that you haven't, we will probably talk about it all anyway. So look forward to that. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe and give us five stars and, Tell a friend and do all things of that nature. Uh, got the runs pod at gmail.com. Got the runs pod on Twitter. Listen to Bevy of Bevies, okay. which will be back soon. Listen to High Floor Low Don't Ceiling, which will also be back soon. <laughs> okay, we have a hater oh. in our midst. <laughs> uh, and you can also follow me at C House and Jan on Twitter. Uh, I guess that will do it now that David has uh, told everyone what's coming next week. So until next time, to to be be continued. We have a little baby. (laughs) And I will be lining up the outro music so that I.